open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, that starts on page 822, bottom of page 822 in the pew Bible. While you're turning there, I wanted to just share a brief uh, little little story about uh, uh, interaction I had with uh, Pastor Brett a couple of weeks ago as we were... Uh, as I was preparing and as we were uh, talking about uh, various things, we were texting back and forth um, actually about football. And um, out of the blue, Brett sends me a message just saying, hey, just, uh, just wanted to, to let you know that normally I try to have my sermons be about 40, 42 minutes, thereabouts. And I thought that was a pretty odd confession to make just out of the blue over a text message about uh, football. So I wanted to offer, Brett, if you need help beefing them up a little bit, I can. <laughs> I'm not counting that towards my time either. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's read uh, Matthew 17. Beginning in verse 14, we're looking at verses 14 through 20 this morning. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Will you pray with me? Father, I give thanks once again for your word. Lord, I pray that you will... um, Help me now as I seek to, uh, to preach. I pray, Father, that the things that I say would only serve to illuminate your word, to point us to your word. Father, I pray that uh, whatever weaknesses or errors there may be in me, I pray, Lord, that you would um, that you would overpower them, and that only your words would be would be heard and received this morning, that we might serve you better, love you better. In Christ's name. Amen. So a while back, uh, I preached, and after uh, my sermon, uh, Ben 
Watson came up to me and scolded me because I neglected to include an illustration from Lord of the Rings. And I've often thought about Ben's words since then in preparing subsequent sermons. Unfortunately, once again, this morning's sermon also does not contain an illustration from Lord of the Rings. Instead, I would like to begin by talking about Star Wars. So in Star Wars, you have something called the Force, right? The Force is this mysterious, mystical, invisible energy field that can be tapped into and utilized to accomplish all kinds of things. In the first Star Wars movie, one of the main characters, a wise old man named Obi-Wan Kenobi, describes the Force as an energy field created by all living things, which surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together. It can be utilized by both good guys, known as Jedi, and bad guys, often referred to as Sith, to accomplish either good or evil things. Now, before you get scared, let me go ahead and reassure you that I am not about to say that faith is like the Force. Apart from the fact that that would be intensely nerdy, says the guy opening his sermon with a Star Wars illustration. It would also be wildly inaccurate, given how the Force is far more inspired by ideas in Eastern mysticism than anything resembling biblical faith. Instead, I want to draw attention to how the Force, because it is invisible and because it is so mysterious and so hard to define, gets used in all kinds of ways. The deeper you go into the lore of Star Wars, and it's possible to go really deep, the more you see how the Force is used to explain all kinds of things, and at times almost becomes something like a magical storytelling device that can fix or explain just about any problem that characters may face. Characters can use it to improve their fighting, to lift objects and move them around with their minds, to communicate across long distances to jump really high and really far, to get really good at pod racing, and even to communicate with animals and plants, even things like giant space whales capable of traveling through hyperspace. You know, when you start to say these things out loud, it starts, almost starts to sound pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, at a certain point, Star Wars even materialized the Force, making it quantifiable. All you had to do was get a blood sample from someone and examine the amount of microscopic particles they had, known as midichlorians, to determine how strong they were in the Force. Quite a departure from a mysterious, mystical energy field produced by all living things that binds the galaxy together. The application of the Force is so widespread and varied that more recent Star Wars films have even poked a little bit of fun at this trend. In one recent film, when a character is asked to explain the Force... She says, it's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Quite a far cry from the mystical, mysterious definition in the first Star Wars film, but an honest definition from someone who has pretty much just seen people use the Force to, well, control people and make things float. On another occasion, we have a scene where a legacy character, that is a character who has been part of Star Wars from the beginning, known as Han Solo, is on his way to rescue another character alongside a brand new character. 
And along the way, at one point, Han Solo becomes concerned about how they will be able to accomplish their mission, which leads the brand new character, who knows almost nothing about the Force, to try and reassure him by saying, we'll figure it out, we'll use the Force. To which Han Solo, who has been around a lot longer, replies, that's not how the Force works. Now, as funny as that is, it serves as a reminder that even while the Force is used to explain all kinds of things that take place within these stories, within the Star Wars universe, there still has to be some kind of understanding of what it is that we are talking about. Something similar may be observed when conversations about faith come up. And the Star Wars illustration is over, so you got, those of you who have checked out, you can come back. Faith gets thrown around in all sorts of ways by different types of people who at times may not even realize that they are talking about very different things. We may talk about people of faith. People use that terminology, which really just means people with a certain kind of religious commitment. Others may talk about faith as if it is some kind of self-generated force or a spiritual energy or power that we can conjure up and utilize, while others may still have something else in mind. Well, the good news is that I think that biblical faith is not like the force, but has a very specific usage. And since our passage is centered around faith, it will provide us with the perfect opportunity to point to various misunderstandings of faith and say, that's not the way that faith works. So, all right, that's the nerdiest I'll get today, at least with regard to Star Wars. Before we dive into our passage I want to remind you of some of the ways in which the theme of faith has appeared in Matthew's gospel up to this point, since I think they will help inform our understanding of Jesus' words on faith in chapter 17. First, we have seen several instructive instances where someone's faith is associated with a miraculous healing. We see this beginning all the way back in Matthew chapter 8 with the faith of the centurion, where a centurion approaches Jesus, pleads for Jesus to heal his servant, and says to Jesus, only say the word and my servant will be healed. In response, Jesus praises the faith of the centurion, remarking that with no one in Israel had he found such faith. Next came the faith of the paralytic's friends in Matthew 9, who bring the paralyzed man to Jesus, believing that Jesus would be able to heal their friend. Interestingly, like with the centurion, the faith which Jesus sees and responds to is a faith for the healing of someone other than the one approaching Jesus in faith. Later in chapter 9, we see the faith of the woman with the discharge of blood. What is remarkable here is that this woman concludes that she doesn't even need to have a conversation with Jesus, but needs only to touch the hem of his garment in order to be healed. After she does so, Jesus addresses her and says that her faith has made her well. And not long after this, in that same chapter, we see the faith of two blind men who are healed by Jesus and who are also said to have been healed according to their faith. The final instance that we've seen as we've been going through Matthew before chapter 17 involves the faith of the Canaanite woman back in chapter 15. Once again, we have a scene involving the faith of someone on behalf of someone else, in this case, a mother pleading for mercy and healing for her daughter. And the woman recognizes 
that Christ and His kingdom are so glorious that it is even enough to receive the crumbs that fall from the banquet table. Jesus praises the woman for her faith, and her daughter is instantly healed. Notice the character of the faith on display in each of these scenes. In each of these scenes, the faith that is praised by Jesus is not proud and does not expect that Jesus is obligated to grant their requests. Instead, in every case, the faith is humble yet confident. Humble in the sense that the one who approaches Jesus is not presumptuous, demanding that Jesus heal them because of who they are or what they have done, yet confident in the sense that they believe Jesus is who he says he is and is therefore able to grant their requests if he so desires. Um, Our brother Aaron Finch uh, this past February uh, quoted Kenneth Copeland from the pulpit. But more importantly, that quotation came in the midst of a sermon on Matthew 9, 18 through 26, the scene involving the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And in that sermon, I think Aaron did a great job providing us with a very helpful reflection upon what faith actually is. Aaron rightly argued that faith is not irrational, a decision to ignore facts that are right in front of us, a tool to get what we really want, a force by which to manipulate the cosmos, or something else like that. Instead, the faith we see throughout all of these scenes which Jesus praises is much more akin to a kind of desperate trust. When you come across the word faith, we could almost substitute the word trust or confidence, and it might help our understanding a bit. The faith that Jesus praises, the faith that He requires is a simple, trusting reliance or a hopeful confidence. Sometimes that faith isn't much. Sometimes it's feeble, desperate, nearly hopeless, or even scared, like a child who runs up to mom and dad and throws themselves around their legs, clinging for dear life. Or like a woman who has suffered terribly for over a decade with nowhere else to go, who believed that if she could just touch his garment, she could be made well. It is this definition of faith that we need to bear in mind as we wrestle with the words of Jesus in our passage this morning. Now, also present at various point throughout Matthew's Gospel alongside of these scenes of simple, confident faith resulting in miraculous healing, are scenes which display the lack of faith of the disciples. Specifically, these include the calming of the storm in chapter 8, the scene of Jesus walking on water in chapter 14, the warning of Jesus to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in chapter 16, and our passage this morning. In each of these prior scenes, rather than displaying a simple yet confident trust in Jesus, the disciples display a lack of trust and a tendency to look to their own power and understanding, which results in Jesus repeatedly referring to them as, you of little faith. With the calming of the storm, the disciples are fearful for their lives since the storm is raging while Jesus is sleeping. 
But rather than approaching Jesus humbly and confidently, they awake him in a panic. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. To which Jesus replies, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? With the scene of Jesus walking on the water, Peter initially displays a humble yet confident faith. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he does. He obeys Jesus' command to come to him. And Peter is able to walk along the water to Jesus until he sees the wind, becomes afraid, and begins to sink. Reaching out his hand and taking hold of him, Jesus again asks, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Finally, with the scene in chapter 16, the disciples are concerned about the fact that they have not brought any bread, leading to confusion about Jesus' instruction to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Once again, they display their little faith because they remain concerned about where their physical sustenance will come from, even after witnessing Jesus miraculously miraculously feed two enormous crowds with almost nothing to start with, when they ought to be far more concerned about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the reason I've devoted so much time to recounting this motif of humble yet confident faith, which is praised by Jesus in association with miraculous healing and the motif of the little faith of the disciples, is because in our passage this morning, we find these two motifs side by side. Once again, we are confronted with a scene where a man approaches Jesus on behalf of someone else, in this case his son, who is possessed by a demon. But this time, it is not the faith of the one who approaches Jesus that is front and center, but rather the faith, or lack thereof, of the disciples. Matthew Uh, compared to Mark's uh, version of the story, removes a lot of the details that we find in in Mark chapter 9, which which expand upon the story at a a far greater length, including details of the back and forth between the Father and Jesus, which which emphasize the Father's faith, culminating in that famous cry of the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. We don't have that in Matthew's version, because Matthew wants us to focus all of our attention on the faith or failure of faith, of the disciples. So with all of that, let's turn again to our passage and unpack some of the details within to see how it contributes to this larger faith-slash-little-faith theme we see throughout Matthew's Gospel. So looking first to verses 14 through 16. To begin with, as we've already seen, The scene opens with a man coming up to Jesus from a crowd in a humble fashion, kneeling before him, asking the Lord to have mercy on his son and describing the condition his son suffers from. This is a pattern that we've seen several times in these types of stories in Matthew's Gospel. But once again, the big difference from previous stories is the detail in verse 16 that the father had brought his son to Jesus' disciples, but they were not able to heal him. So, Beginning in verses 14 through 15, I'll read those again. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So we begin with the boy's issue. This issue has some Controversy among commentators who go back and forth debating what exactly is the precise nature of the thing that this boy is suffering from. 
The, the issue that the boy suffers from is described in the passage using a Greek word which is related to the term for moon, selene, which is why some older translations say that the boy is a lunatic. That word lunatic is derived from the Latin term for moon, luna, think lunar. A lunatic or someone who was moonstruck in the ancient world was particularly thought to be affected by the cycles of the moon, right? When we use the term moonstruck nowadays, we, we usually use it in applications of someone who is moonstruck, they're crazy in love for someone, but it used to just mean someone who's crazy and particularly associated with the phases of the moon. And that may seem odd at first until we consider how many times we've probably heard uh, an exasperated mother whose kids have been going wild all day declare, it must be a full moon, right? This idea still uh, lingers. Some have claimed that in the ancient world, someone who was moonstruck was essentially someone with epilepsy, given the, the description of the boy here in this passage. However, there was a Greek word for epilepsy, which would have worked just fine here if that were the specific illness in view. And so because of the dispute about the use of that term epilepsy, most modern translations have now opted to translate the term simply, he has seizures, which is descriptive of what we find. Right? He is thrown into these uncontrollable convulsions, he's thrown into the fire, he's thrown into the water. My ESV, actually, which is an older uh, edition of the ESV, actually still has the, the reading epilepsy, but newer uh, updates of the ESV have changed it to just having he has seizures. But whatever the malady may be, whatever it is that the boy is suffering from in verse 18, uh, or in the passage, verse 18 makes it clear that this is a result of a demon, which Jesus quickly and effortlessly casts out. Now, this does not mean, as some have been led to assume by passages like this, that any occurrence of epilepsy or seizures is the result of demonic possession. But in this particular instance, that was the case. Now, I spent that little bit of time uh, pointing to some of the controversy about what exactly uh, is going on with the boy, which you might see if you pick up any commentary on Matthew's gospel, to then say that that is not the emphasis of the passage. We get in verse 16 the real issue. The real issue is that of the disciples' inability. So while there's some dispute about the precise nature of the boy's issue, the real controversy of the passage is introduced in verse 16 when we are told that the disciples, presumably the nine who were left behind when Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus earlier in the chapter, were unable to heal the boy. Now, I've already given you a rundown of scenes involving the disciples' little faith. And by the way, we could multiply those to provide even further examples of the disciples' failure. But the point being that by this point in the narrative, we've almost come to expect this of them. But what is particularly striking about this issue of the disciples is that in this instance, back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had empowered them to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every disease and every affliction. And presumably they were doing this all along the way up until chapter 17. But here, for whatever reason, they are incapable of doing it. Jesus is going to explain to them in verse 20 why they were unable to do it. 
But first, we have verses 17 through 18, where Jesus expresses his exasperation at this faithless and twisted generation. So, verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, in Jesus' response, O faithless and twisted generation, we should notice that Jesus is not initially speaking to the man who approached him. He's not responding to the man, the man's words, and approaching Jesus and saying, O faithless and twisted generation. Instead, he is provoked by the failure of his disciples and addresses a broader audience. This generation, of which his disciples are evidently representative. The term faithless that Jesus uses here anticipates Jesus' comment about the disciples' little faith in verse 20 and speaks to the unbelieving nature of this generation. He then uses the term twisted or perverse. And this term indicates that their unbelief is stemming from a moral failure to recognize the truth. It's not that there is no evidence for their belief, but their twisted or distorted thinking has led to faithlessness. It's also interesting to notice that the language Jesus uses here, faithless and twisted generation, is also reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 32, particularly verses 5 and 20. In that chapter, Israel is described as a crooked and twisted generation in whom there is no faith. And within Deuteronomy 32, Israel is specifically described this way for their rejection of God their Father and their turning to place their faith in idols, things that are not God. This parallel becomes even more interesting when we consider the parallels in Matthew chapter 17 of Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration to the unbelief of His disciples, comparing that with the scene of Moses descending from the mountain in Exodus 32, tablets of God's revelation in hand, only to discover Israel having rejected the one true God in favor of an idol of their own making. And so by echoing this language, which is applied to Israel, which has also been used elsewhere in Matthew's gospel up to this point, Matthew seems to be highlighting how the failure of the disciples' faith makes them typical of their contemporaries. They are repeating the pattern of unbelief from their ancestors all the way back to the Exodus period. And so Jesus exclaims, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And this provides us with a rare glimpse into the frustration of Jesus in his appeals to an unresponsive and unbelieving world. And his words here in his, this exclamation are even weightier when we remember again that while they are directed broadly to those who his teaching, this generation, remember they were provoked by his own students, by his closest followers. 
And I can't help but wonder how representative this might be of the church to this very day. We who profess Christ, how often do we remain as faithless and warped in our own understanding as these disciples did, thereby displaying the same faithlessness as our non-Christian world all around us? How often do we lean on our own understanding and put our trust in chariots and horses, as the psalmist says, rather than in the name of the Lord our God? How often do we rely upon our own frail and brittle frames rather than the only one who is actually able to accomplish all things according to His good and perfect pleasure? How often do we fret over where our sustenance will come from or look to the wind in the storms of life rather than relying totally upon the one who commands the wind and the waves and who provides us with all that we need? Such things are to be expected from this generation, from those outside the church. But how tragic when even those within the church are guilty of such faithlessness. Finally, at the end of verse 17, Jesus instructs them to bring the boy to him. And then in verse 18, it says, Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. No problem. Once again, Mark's version back in Mark 9 <clears throat> excuse me, is far more expansive and detailed than what we find here in Matthew's gospel. The description of Jesus casting out the demon in Mark 9 is much more elaborate and dramatic. The boy is thrown into convulsions, falls down like he's dead until Jesus touches him and raises him up. Matthew's description, however, is very short, crisp. To the point, again demonstrating that the emphasis here is not so much upon the details of the healing, but more upon the relationship of the faith of the disciples to their failure to heal the boy. As with previous scenes that we've seen in Matthew's gospel, Jesus pulls this healing off immediately and effortlessly. Very little drama on his end. But this time... There is still the matter of the disciples' failure to do what they had been empowered to do already. And so in verses 19 through 20, we turn at last to the aftermath of the exorcism, a private setting where Jesus' disciples, <clears throat> who have been conspicuously off stage up to this point, perhaps further highlighting their failure and inability, approach Jesus and ask why it was that they were unable to cast out this demon. Jesus responds in verse 20 <clears throat> and gives the reason. He says, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Here it is important for us to consider what Jesus is saying in this passage about faith, as well as what he is not saying about faith. For starters, we need to understand that when Jesus names the disciples' little faith as the reason for their failure to cast out the demon... He is not speaking of the quantity of their faith, but rather the quality 
of their faith. He is not interested in the amount of faith, but rather the focus or the object of their faith. We're not to understand here like like money. The more money you have, generally speaking, the more power and influence you have, the more ability to make things happen. Whereas the less money you have, the less options you have, the less power and influence. Faith doesn't work like that. Remember what we said earlier about faith being a humble yet confident trust in the Lord. Instead, when Jesus speaks of their little faith, what he is emphasizing is the poverty of their faith. It's poor quality. They are not trusting in the Lord and in Him alone. And we know that Jesus can't be speaking about the amount of faith here because of what He says immediately after this. He says, Even if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds according to Matthew 13.32, then you will be capable of things which seem virtually impossible. So clearly it's not how much faith you have, but ultimately the focus or object of your faith. It may be that the disciples were empowered to cast out demons back in Matthew 10, but had begun to treat this ability as though it were their own possession or their own ability, more like a, almost more like a magic trick that they could use as they desired to achieve the same results as if they humbly trusted in the power of the one who had empowered them to do this in the first place, as they were to do. Because all along, the whole time, there was nothing in the disciples which enabled them to overcome the demons. In every case, it was God who gave the power. The only way to accomplish such miraculous feats was to look to Him and act in humble faith. The image that Jesus uses here is that of moving mountains. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. This image of moving mountains is used in Jewish texts and some Greek texts to describe doing something that was virtually impossible. The imagery of mountains being crushed by Israel and by God's Spirit-empowered leaders appears in places like Isaiah 41.15. In Zechariah 4, 6-7. We also have passages which emphasize, that, which, which provide this image in association with the Lord in places like Zechariah 14, 3-5, which says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. Similarly, places like Isaiah 40, verse 4, describes how at the coming of, before the coming of the Lord, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Likewise, Isaiah 49, 11, The Lord says, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. So although we're not talking in Matthew 17 so much about literally moving physical mountains with our words, instead, this image is being referred, is being used to refer to accomplishing something seemingly impossible 
by trusting in the power and authority of the one who did make the mountains and who is capable of moving or destroying them at will. And of course, if this is the power which is behind the great feats which are able to be accomplished through faith, then we can understand why Jesus went in by saying, nothing will be impossible for you. And so with that final statement, nothing will be impossible for you, I'd like to go ahead and try and tie a few things together and begin to suggest a few observations for application. I would like to do so by identifying three things which Jesus' words, nothing will be impossible for you, do not mean, and offering some thoughts on how I think we should take his words and apply them to our lives. So for starters, nothing will be impossible for you does not mean that you are able to have faith and trust God for anything and everything your heart desires, expecting that exactly what you desire will manifest in exactly the way you expect it to. Obviously, Jesus is not talking about you being able to receive any sinful or foolish thing that you pursue in faith. James chapter 4, verse 2, which is a popular passage among the Word of Faith movement, reads, You do not have because you do not ask. And by the Word of Faith bunch, it is interpreted to mean that if you don't have something you want, it's because you haven't asked for it. Creflo Dollar has said, When we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to getting results as a Christian. So while it's not necessarily wrong to pray for personal blessing, if we understand this text the way Mr. Dollar would have us understand it, then prayer becomes a tool that we can use to force God to grant our desires. Furthermore, Word of Faith folks also tend to overlook the next verse, James chapter 4, verse 3, which says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, God does not answer selfish requests that do not honor his name and seek his will. At the same time, we must acknowledge that nothing will be impossible for you also does not mean that every time you trust the Lord to bring about something good, such as, say, the physical healing of a loved one with a terminal illness, and he doesn't, that your faith was insufficient, that you just needed more faith. We've already demonstrated from Jesus' words that what matters is not the amount of faith that you have, but rather the focus of your faith, the object of your faith. You can be someone who has suffered for years from a debilitating illness, who desperately reaches for the hem of the king's garment. And even that much faith is sufficient. The issue, once again, is not that the Lord would have granted your request if only you had had more faith. On the contrary, there may be instances where, like the Apostle Paul, you may be given a thorn in your flesh which you plead with the Lord to remove from you, only to be told time and time again, no. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We in this church body have known what it is to pray to the Lord, to plead with God, to heal beloved brothers and sisters who have fallen ill. And we have known what it is for the Lord to deny our requests. Not because he was incapable or because we didn't have enough faith credits in our faith bank accounts, but because in his sovereignty, although it seemed a tragic outcome from our perspective, he planned to bring about something far greater and more glorious than we could fully comprehend this side of the new heavens and new earth. As William Cowper said, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God is not obligated to heal everyone we ask him to heal, but that doesn't mean that he is incapable. And it also doesn't mean that we were somehow deficient in our asking. And so finally, we should not be led to believe that since God is going to do whatever he desires anyway, we just shouldn't even bother asking. And I want to park here at the end for for a little bit longer because I think given our context, given the general temperaments of of folks in this congregation and and theological persuasions of, of many of us, I think it's usually pretty easy for us to identify the abuses of this doctrine committed by the Word of Faith crowd. But we must be even more on guard against something which is a much greater temptation for us. The temptation to become lax or indifferent or even skeptical about what God can accomplish through us if we pray and trust Him. Sometimes we can fall into that that temptation to the point that we may not even bother praying. Or if we still pray, maybe our prayers become half-hearted, weak, not reflective of a heart that truly desires God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God, reflects on the potential dangers of misusing or abusing the doctrine of God's sovereignty, particularly if it leads you to become a kind of divine fatalist, he calls it, the sort of person who fails an important exam and tries to excuse himself by saying, well, God is sovereign, And he determined that I should fail that exam. I know I didn't study at all, but it was God's will. Or the sort of person who causes a car wreck and tries to excuse his carelessness by saying, well, God is sovereign and he determined that this accident would happen. Now, it's undoubtedly true that God is sovereign over all that comes to pass. But as Bridges reminds us, quote, the knowledge of God's sovereignty is meant to be an encouragement to pray, not an excuse to lapse into a sort of pious fatalism. End quote. Another quote, Bridges continues, quote, prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. Prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that He is able to answer our prayers. Our prayers would become nothing more than wishes. But while God's sovereignty, along with His wisdom and love, is the foundation of our trust in Him, prayer is the expression of that trust. 
Prayer is the expression of that trust, end quote. And one more quote from Bridges' book. This one taken from the Puritan preacher Thomas Lye. Lye says, quote, As prayer without faith is but a beating of the air, so trust without prayer is but a presumptuous bravado. He that promises to give and bids us trust his promises commands us to pray and expects obedience to his commands. He will give, but not without our asking. End quote. So, you may have noticed <clears throat> up to this point in the sermon that I have not read verse 21 of this passage even though your worship guides indicate that the message this morning is on Matthew 17, 14 through 21. Oh, no, it changed. Never mind. Just kidding. It did say that. You may <clears throat> also have noticed that if you're using a modern translation such as the ESV, verse 21 is present only in a footnote. Now, the reason for this is that verse 21 is not found in the earliest witnesses to the text of Matthew, which were not in use when chapters and verses were assigned. And the addition appears to be an attempt by scribes to harmonize Jesus' response here with Jesus' response back in Mark 9, 29. So, while the words, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting, may not be original to Matthew's gospel, a similar statement is made in Mark's gospel in response to the same question from the disciples about why they could not cast out the demon. And I think that what Jesus says there remains instructive for us even as we consider the implications of Jesus' words for us here in Matthew. And this pertains to this final point that I'm trying to make. Namely, while we must recognize that all that God and His sovereignty has ordained to take place will come to pass, we must also remember that He has also ordained the means to accomplish these purposes as well as the ends. And we should remember that we are given gifts, such as prayer, which God does use to accomplish the ends which He has decreed. And we should also remember that if we fail to make use of these good gifts He has given us, then we may find ourselves inadvertently sliding from what began as a divine fatalism, God's going to do whatever He wants, I don't need to bother doing anything, into a mindset that eventually doesn't even look to God, but starts to look to other things, even ourselves, to accomplish things which only the one who made the mountains is capable of bringing about. And so, in closing, I want to exhort us to not neglect the good gifts our Father has given us, to not neglect to ask Him for good things in accordance with His will, and to not pursue a poor, half-hearted faith which can do nothing, but instead have faith at all times in the one who made the mountains and the one before whom the mountains flee to make way for his coming, even if at times all you can muster is a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible because nothing is impossible for the one in whom you have placed your faith.